Yes, so uh, hello and welcome to our next instalment of Nucleus Insights, uh, and today we've entitled it Good Defense is the Best Offense, uh, and this is just uh, in light of, uh, I guess, some recent market volatility, uh, and we'll run into an agenda. So today we're going to be looking at asset allocation, uh, the various uh, tactical mixes that we, that we employ. And uh, then rolling into stock selection and how, uh, I guess, they are actively managed uh, strategies in terms of uh, the stocks we select in the portfolio uh, do also help to lower overall risk in the portfolio. And then, of course, finally, uh, a look uh, at the current outlook for uh, going forward for uh, the portfolios and, and uh, markets around the world and how we invest every day at Nucleus Wealth. So with no further ado, I'll, I'll hand over to uh, Damien and David. Welcome, guys. Hi, Hi Tim. And uh, we'll jump into uh, asset allocation. Fire away. Sorry. Yeah, so, sure. yeah, we've got a, got a range there. Cash, government bonds, corporate bonds, stocks, currency, gold, all the, the major uh, pieces of a, of a portfolio pie. Yeah, so, so what we wanted to do is sort of run through the, um, the, the whole part about how do you protect your portfolios. If, if, if uh, the proverbial hits the fan and we start seeing um, you know, significant falls, especially in stock markets, is is how do you uh, expect in a typical downturn um, these various assets to to uh, to perform? Uh, bit of a look at the correlation between different different asset classes. So. What we mean by that is, is uh, typically what you'll find is that government bonds will uh, decline when when uh, equities are rising and, and vice versa. When equities fall, you'll, you'll get some, some increase in government bonds, but that doesn't always happen. So it's a sort of a, a correlation that you often see, but, but not always. And then sort of a bit of a, our thoughts on a bit of a this time is different, you know. So if, so if um, given the, the, the current situations we have, uh, what are the issues that we could see and um and where can we see things happening differently this time uh, versus others? So we probably should start. Uh, so yeah, so of the of the, the asset classes there, um, and then we'll jump into some stock selection side. So so there's two sides to it. One is uh, which assets do you decide to put in your portfolio, whether it be cash, government bonds, um, stocks, currencies, gold, all those types of things, or um, within when you've actually bought stocks. There is a a um, there's various sectors you can buy and, and overweight and underweight and so which and, and you see quite uh, distinct performance in terms of those uh, which which stocks in which sectors are performing as well. So with that we might jump into uh, jump into the cash side. So so the first first part for the cash um, you know so this is obviously the, the safe asset um, not much. You don't get much in the way of a return uh, globally on this. So in times gone past, um, and, and especially if we're looking at, um, if you're looking at sort of 20, 30 year histories, it's important to remember that uh, in sort of 20, 30 years ago, cash rates were much, much higher than what they were, uh, what what they are at the moment. And so, um, you know, most international accounts, you, you're either earning zero or, or very close to zero. And you know, even in Aussie accounts, um, you know, two or three percent, sort of the the uh, the, the typical sort of um, uh, return you're going to get. So the, in terms of upside, there's not much upside. In terms of downside, look, your main downside is is whether you're, uh, and the main question we get from people is is whether you see um, banks fail and, and, and people sort of lose money from, from, from major upsets from that. Our take is is very much that um, there is a there's, a, there's a government guarantee which sort of covers you for part of that money. But but the big issue is uh, will government step in and, and um, bail out depositors if a major bank was to fail? And our take is pretty much yeah, it's going to happen. So David, uh, yeah, I think I think that's right. The political consequences of not doing so are immense. Mm. Uh, so I think it's a fair bet. Um, that said, there is legislation in place that enables some bail-in of depositors, um, but. Uh, I think the likely trajectory of any bailout um, would leave the resources available to not need to go that path anyway because our public debt is low enough that we could kind of take the hit. Yep. I mean, it would be a generational uh, shock to the budget and a kind of permanent step up in the deficit, but 
I think it unlikely even so that, that mm. those kind of extreme measures would be necessary and they've only transpired in very few countries. Yeah, and, and most of the countries where we've seen uh, any of that form, it's they've actually been like the island, for example, actually helped all the debt holders, so not just the depositors, but the debt holders actually got most of the money back as well. Mm. So, um, you know, the depositors, you guys are... The, or the depositors sort of first in line. So, so I guess what we're saying from there is, um, look, it's possible, but um, seems to us very, very unlikely that um, you know there's there's a significant amount of, of downside, you know, in terms of this time. And so, sort of without, so we'll leave that one to the side for the moment, and maybe jump onto the, some government bonds. Sure. So, government bonds now, with as a difference to corporate bonds. So, corporate bonds, you are generally exposed to to two elements. Um, one is the actual interest rate cycle. And the other element is the uh, whether the companies you've invested in are actually going to survive, and, and whether they're going to have a, a default event or or whatever that, that that ends up, you know, you end up losing capital on those. So in terms of government bonds, that you generally don't have the issue of there being a default um, for, and particularly for domestic ones. So if you're talking about saying uh, an Australian investor investing in Greek bonds or or Portuguese bonds, then then you do have an issue uh, if you're investing overseas. <coughs> But uh, in terms of investing in your, your own government bonds, it's it's very, very rare that governments ever default for, for pretty much the same reason as what we spoke about for, for the cash side. You, what you can get is you can get inflated away by, by inflation, uh, which basically means the government's print money to, to give it back. Um, so there are issues. You do need to worry about default risk if you're investing in overseas bonds. But if we're, if we're talking about domestic bonds, your real risk isn't a default of the Australian government. It's the, that they can't afford to pay and they need to print a whole bunch of money in order to pay back um, depositors. And, and again, that's another risk which certainly in recent times has been very low. Um, you know, there's there's a, a dance um, both the US central banks doing, um, the, the European central banks and, and Japanese central banks where they're basically they're, they're, they're lending the government money and then putting it back and, and shifting it around in terms of this monetary printing, which isn't quite monetary printing. Um, which basically means that um, you know, as as a, if you've got your central bank buying effectively an unlimited amount of your your bonds, it's very hard to default on that. Yeah, and and they almost invariably fail on generating the inflation anyway. Yes, absolutely. Like you know, because most of these strategies are counterproductive in terms of generating inflation. They tend to support uh, bad businesses and bad debt, create kind of a zombie supply in the economy that weighs on inflation endlessly and then you add all of our other structural overhangs in inequality and demographics mm. high debt etc and even when they've printed they've really struggled to inflate anything away yeah so so what that comes back to for, for government bonds is saying government bonds are a pretty good asset um, for when when something bad happens um, as long as there's nothing centrally a central issue with the economy you're in in terms of that that actual government you know having problems um, then usually the government bonds will will actually um, will actually rise in value. The the interest rates will fall because people are expecting interest rates will need to be lower, and and those will the, will rise in value. If we're talking, especially if we're talking about Australian bonds, which is where our, our sort of key focus is on these on these government bonds. I was, I was so, going to say, yeah, just on that note, um, from a from our nucleus wealth and macro business fund portfolios, where pretty much this is this is us for in regards to bonds, like. We've got a. We've, we're not heavily overweight. Oh, sorry, within our bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as an asset class, absolutely. Yeah, there's two types of, and the other thing is there's two types. But we actually might let's jump into some correlations quickly. Um, David, I might hand over to David. Uh, uh, sure. Well, this one's just to to illustrate the point that uh, you know the capital value of bonds uh, tends to rise when the capital value of equities falls. Sure. Uh, and so, if you want to look through this chart. Uh, you'll just find whenever the ASX falls that interest rates fall on the 10-year, which means that the capital value of that bond is rising. Sure. Uh, and so th- at least throughout that entire period, it's been a very reliable safe haven if you're looking for protection from equity risk or volatility. Um, you know, that said, um, as Damo just mentioned, you know, there are occasions where particular economies have more intense and structural uh, adjustments uh, and that correlation can break down. So you, you're kind of seeing that at the moment in some emerging markets where bonds are, uh, are falling in capital value terms just as stocks fall as well. Mm, but that's okay. largely a function of capital outflow. Sure. Um, 
And so, you know, there is a tail risk of something like that in Australia. It's a very long tail scenario, but one in which, you know, perhaps there was a, if there were a major China shock uh, and that were enough to, to sort of sink housing, perhaps, uh, really pressure the bank's balance sheets and mm-hmm. uh, trigger a bailout and, and shunt, you know, a lot of that private sector debt onto the public balance sheet. Po- possibly in that scenario, you might see pressure on government bond bond prices mm-hmm. at the same time as our equity prices, uh, but it's a quite an extreme scenario. Um, you would probably also need to see you know much higher offshore funding rates for the banks and a whole lot of things going wrong. Basically, it's the scenario in which you have an Australian financial crisis. Mm. Um, you know, it's not it's not impossible, uh, but it's it is a long tail risk. And, and I guess from our perspective, that's more likely in five or ten years' time. You know, I guess if 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 you sort of saw, is it because government debt's quite low? We've got our we've still got a chance to to transfer a lot of private debt onto the the the, the public balance sheet first is the first step. Yep. And then after that, the next step is then okay. Well, another next crisis comes along. Now you've got no more firepower left, and that's sort of where. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other part of that is the sovereign rating, of course. If if you uh, you know start to to lose uh, or be downgraded at the sovereign level repeatedly. In Australia's case, that that is very difficult because it cascades. It, you know, the, the federal budget guarantees state budgets and banking offshore debt as well. And so you get this cascade effect where a, a federal downgrade can roll through interest rates through, throughout the whole complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... You know, if you to get into that tail risk scenario, you would need to see uh, a sequence of sovereign downgrades, uh, and you know, for that to transpire, you really would need to see very serious damage to commodity income flows, and so it really comes back to China too. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm. So we want to jump to the next. Yeah, jump to the got, next one. Got a next slide up, which is just sort of showing a very long term. This is a U.S. government bonds versus um, versus stocks correlation. Just to sort of show that the correlations are low. So basically, what that's showing, if, if correlations is, if you're perfectly correlated, one goes up, the other one goes up, um, and perfectly, uh, sorry, correlation of one, and perfectly negatively correlated gives you one goes down, the other one, one goes down, the other one goes up, goes up, yep. Um, and so they're, they're general, well, not generally, they're general, well, they are generally very low, uh, very lowly correlated. So the one we're showing here, you're just sort of maxing out at sort of you know about. Um, 0.25 in terms of correlation on the positive side and, and about negative 0.5 on the on the negative side. So, uh, and, and they have been negatively correlated for the last sort of 10 to 10 or so years. Sure. Um, we do expect that to continue for some time. We think a lot of that positive correlation was the falling uh, bond rates mm-hmm. um, and bond rates pretty much globally are, are, are close to the bottom. Mm. You know, there's not a lot of, not, not a lot more room for, for them to go down. So, um but it is worth noting that you know, correlation doesn't always hold. It's just a, you know, will, will it hold this time? Um, for the Australian economy, we think that on the balance of probabilities, yes, um, you will get the holding. Uh, but, you know, if things change, uh, you, need to, you need to consider again. The other types of assets within government bonds you can get is uh, what's called inflation-linked bonds. Um, so we generally try and choose between whether we're buying non-inflation-linked bonds or inflation-linked bonds. Yep, sure. So um, inflation-linked bonds being so an inflation-linked bond. So, so government. Let me start with the government bond. So government bond issued at a hundred dollars, say, um, and it'll have a yield attached to it, and that yield might be on some of the bonds we've got. You know, it's still relatively high. It might be sort of five percent, mm. for example, which means that 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 bond. So it issues on day one, you know, ten years ago at a five percent yield, and um, pays with a hundred dollar yep. face value. Yep, and so it's paying that that out that money as the uh, as the yields fall. As government bond yields fall, the price goes up, so that you're effectively getting, you know, so now you might be getting a three percent yield on that on that instrument. Yep. Um, which means you're buying at 110, 115 dollars. So the and, and but in the end, you know, you still you still get your hundred dollars back, and you get your five dollars every every time. Sure. Inflation linked bonds are different in that the the amount you get back actually rises every year, depending upon inflation, mm-hmm. and the interest rates paid on that higher amount. Okay. So basically, um, rather than being five dollars for that entire entire period, now you're getting uh, five dollars plus whatever inflation has come through, and so what that means is the yields are generally much much lower, and so you'll buy inflation linked bonds when you're concerned that inflation. Is going to spike, 
And when you're not concerned too much about inflation is when you'll you'll be in the, the normal fixed, bonds. The fixed rate yeah. ones. Okay. And so at the moment, we're pretty much in the fixed rate ones. We've got some inflation-linked bonds for you know a bit of a hedge. Okay. But generally speaking, we're in the, the um, yeah, government fixed-term government bonds with a view that inflation is now a problem. Okay. All right. Sort. Very good. Thanks for that. Um, and um, so just continuing on with the, the corporate bonds. So... Yep. Upside and downside. <laughs> I guess you've, yeah. you've sort of covered off on this at the start there. <laughs> yes. You've got the equity risks essentially built mm. into a into uh, a defensive asset, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so the issue with corporate bonds when when uh, when markets turn is that usually what you find is that the um, the, the risk of default goes up quite dramatically for and um, there'll be a, sub, a subset of companies where this is very very true of and but but other companies that even have that don't have high. De- uh, default risks tend to go up in in sympathy, mm-hmm. and so what you find is that um, whereas government bonds quite often you get a negative correlation uh, in corporate bonds that's not always the case, and sometimes you actually get quite a positive correlation. And, and during the financial crisis, we saw that in a, in a bunch of um, things that people would consider to be uh, people thought were quite safe assets, and, and sat in this fixed income part of their portfolio, mm. particularly the uh, the hybrids. That um, are listed on the the ASX. Yep. Uh, there were a lot of those hybrids where um, you know the proverbial hit the fan. Government bonds went up in value. So if you're holding those, great. If you're holding all these corporate bonds, but you actually lost a lot of money. Not as much as you would have lost in the stock market. Sure. But you still lost a lot of money. And so yeah, the issue you have for those is saying, well, if you've you know the the, the joke is for some of those you've got. Um, uh, you know all all the upside of debt, which is which is none, yep. and all the downside of equity, which is lots. Yeah, and so sure. you just want to make sure you you're not sort of caught in those parts where you're buying assets. You need to know what you're buying in terms of those assets. And there are ones, particularly hybrids, are, are a great example of ones which institutional investors tend not to own. Mm. So very very few. It's it's basically a product for retail investors who like to think, yes, I've got this. You know, I've got a Commonwealth Bank bond. I'm as safe as houses. That'll that'll be fine. Um, whereas the institutional guys are going, what you're paying? You know, you're only paying that yield. If I was going to buy that asset, I want another two or three percent above just to, to to justify it. Yep. Whereas a retail investor gets away on the brand of this, and, and it's sold through their stockbroker or whatever it is. And so, um, yeah. So I guess banks, the issue for corporate bonds, the banks wouldn't do that. Wouldn't they? <laughs> no, no, of course not. But the issue is, um, yeah, corporate bonds. You've got to be really careful about what you're buying, and and um, yeah. And because it's you, there's this correlation essentially. Yeah, sure. So not the same as a government bond. Okay, sure thing. All right, so um, that's uh, the defensive side. Uh, we'll roll into into the stocks. Yes, stocks. stocks. We'll leave just a really quick one because we're going to go into a bit more detail on that. But but stocks generally, when when things hit, when the proverbial hits the fan, um, stocks get smashed. That's yep. you. <laughs> yeah, you know, of all the asset classes, they're the ones that are going to fall the most. Yep. But um, you know, we'll come back to that in in a, in, a, in a little bit more detail later. Okay, sure. So then, um, I guess uh, currency and is, is this uh, currency as an as an asset class uh, per se, or is this sort of just an overlay on on, on the asset, other assets themselves and how they're priced and what they're priced in? Yeah, that's right. So I guess that the big issue is working out that currencies can move quite dramatically, and and generally what you find is that um, there's a bunch of safe haven currencies, so to speak. Um, which uh, the US and, and Japan very much fall into that category and, and the euro to a lesser extent, but it sort of depends upon where the crisis is happening as well. Mm. So when a crisis is centered in, in the US, obviously it's not as much as a, a safe haven. Uh, once that you know, crisis happens in the US, it generally filters to the rest of the economy. Once that happens, you know, so you might often see the US fall initially and then the crisis ends up in every other country and and uh, you know, back goes the US goes back up again and, and to where the money comes back to. Okay. Um, it's, it's not just that they're safe havens, it's also they're funding currencies. So it means they're lending out a lot of money for carry trades, for um, you know, yield trades or, or equity trades in, into emerging markets. Like, you know, when the, when the cycle's booming, everyone's chasing returns, mm. then they tend to borrow in these low interest rate environments like Japan and the US, yep. and then take the money elsewhere. But when, when the proverbial happens... you got to uh, pay re- it back in they, the same. They all yeah, repatriate really quickly. Yep. Uh, and, and that exaggerates the safe haven nature of those currencies. Hmm. So, so what's different this time? Um, and it's, it's important to remember the, the Australian economy, the Australian currency um, you know, sometimes gets mentioned as a safe haven. It's actually a little bit... There's, there's probably... <laughs> 
it's probably a very small it's probably a, a, a slight safe haven in in any initial stages but as soon as things get bad um, we're we're not too far away from emerging currencies in terms of the the issues as we're we're primarily a, an exporter of um, of commodities yep and um, when world growth is going well commodities go up a lot when world growth reverses commodities go down a lot and um, yeah that's that dollar reflects our, that yeah, yeah it's a dollar reflects that most of that has just been rhetorical rubbish well, we are just a risk currency really mm. okay um, you know when the currency when the globe is 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 global growth is going well and risk appetites there and animal spirits are you know in control and what have you then the Aussie rises and when it's the reverse, it's the reverse. Mm. Mm. The, the big thing to note for in terms of this time is different for the currency is that we are now a much larger exporter of gas than we ever were before, and that's going to keep growing over the next few years. So um, if you said compared it to a, a 1990s um, sort of <coughs> recession type thing, the, the, the big difference between then and now is that now where, you know, back then we were, I don't know if we were even an, in, we may well have been an importer of, of a lot of this stuff, now we're a major exporter of gas and only going to get bigger. We'll yep. be the world's largest, if not, uh, it's pretty soon it's coming up. I think we're about to overtake Qatar. So, so what matters now very much is, is what that, that gas price does. And, mm-hmm. and most of that gas is benchmarked to the oil price. Yep. And so, um, if anything, you know, the key difference that could happen this time is if the oil price is high at that point, that'll, that'll, uh, cushion the, the fall. Although yep. we still see a fall, but that'll cushion a bit. Um, uh, if you see the oil price falling as well at the same time, uh, you're going to get the, an exaggerated effect because um, yeah, both you know, both other commodities, both the industrial commodities and the oil price fall at the same time, then yeah, an exaggerated effect on there. Okay. I mean, the, this is a, a, a troubling question hmm. to my mind because a lot of those LNG exports, not all of them, the West Coast stuff is, is better, but the East Coast gas exports are, are all basically profitless. Hmm. Uh, and definitely um, taxless. Yes. And so even though they, they raise uh, the terms of trade, um, which typically correlates with currency, you know, up or down, mm. uh, the the material benefits in the real com- economy simply aren't there. So... Well, that, they, that, they were there when we built it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yes, maybe then, but yeah. not anymore. And so you could have a kind of perverse scenario in which, you know, the that... That component prevents the currency from falling quite as low as it would normally, yeah. uh, but by doing so, it you know it, it's not actually doing it with any benefit to the economy, yeah. and so it's therefore actually retarding you know all the other exporters that would have benefited from that fall, yeah. which which implies then that you know you're not going to get the currency relief that you were, and it may have to keep falling anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, so, fair point. It's a- yeah. So it's a it's a complex one. Mm. That one. We we are now a net oil exporter, oil and gas for the first time ever. Mm. Okay. Uh, and it will remain that way. It'll get a bit bigger, but but we do import a lot of oil, so it's not by a large margin. Okay. All right. And, and just um, I guess going back practically to the portfolios, um, the currency obviously is a fairly big determinant in the way that we position what we do. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a the real one of the real asset allocation benefits of, of sitting in, inside Australia and investing, looking out, is that the currency acts as a buffer. Um, so so to put that back the other way is if you're a, if you're an international investor investing in Australia, um, it's actually a very high beta economy you'd call it so what that, what I mean by that is if you stick money in Australia from if you're a US investor investing in Australia and growth's going great and the stock markets are booming you get a, a, an uplift from stock markets booming and, and growth going well plus you get an uplift from the currency going up the sure. flip side is so you get like a double return the flip side is when it turns you get a double negative mm. on that um, what's good as an Australian investor looking out is that reverses. So when things are going, things are going well, the currency is rising and if you're investing offshore, so you're losing out on your currency and, and gaining on a world growing. Yep. Uh, but the flip side happens when, um, you know, when the proverbial hits a fan, uh, currency drops, which actually cushions the blow of, of international, mm. um, markets falling. And so that's why we, we like it as a, as an asset right now. It's not always a good asset, but, but right now over the next, over the last few years and over the next, um, you know, year two years um we think it's a great asset for for most people to hold because you can get this 
you know this gradual grind higher as as markets rise and 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 um in the last 12 months we've probably done almost 20 percent in terms of the the international fund sure um so you've sort of kept kept hold of that that growth um, but on the flip side, if if um, the the if things turn, you've you've got that buffer sitting in there that'll help cushion the blow. And we saw that in in uh, February, where you know, U.S. markets fall, fell by ten percent ish, and um, you know our holdings in our fund sort of were more like three or four percent down over, over that same t- time period because of the diversification and the and the benefits of the currency at the, at the point. Okay, yep, look, great example there, fantastic. Um, moving on to uh, to gold, I know there's plenty of gold bugs out there, so this could be uh, a point of contention perhaps, but uh, let's try and keep it uh, platonic. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, um, I mean, gold is obviously sort of top of the pyramid for safe haven plays emotionally, uh, but the fact is it's, uh, it's actually very cyclical mm. itself. Uh, and so in a structural sense, you know, it is... It is the the um, premium safe haven, if you like, if you're concerned about, you know, really system system level risk. Yep. So if you're talking, you know, a, some kind of fatal blow to fiat currency in general, mm-hmm. um, maybe a world war, something that really jeopardizes the value and reliability of the institutions that make up financial markets, mm-hmm. then gold is obviously structurally valuable. Sure. Okay. Um, having, having said that, though, you know you, you need to work out the depth of the the, the crisis you're expecting because if it's a um, if you're, uh, I mean, this chart is that one up? Uh, there it is. Yep. Yep. Relation between the direction of the U.S. dollar index and the direction of gold. It it is the primary driver of the gold price. Is the value of the U.S. dollar. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, if you're going to think about gold across a cycle as a safe haven, you have to think about what's going to happen to the US dollar, whether or not gold is an appropriate safe haven for you. Mm. If if the end of the cycle that's transpiring is going to lift the US dollar, then gold is not going to work for you as mm. a safe haven. Um, that said, if you're doing it from Australia, you will have the benefit of the falling Australian dollar. Mm-hmm. So gold in Australian dollars would be better. But you're even... Even so, you're still going to be buying a deflating asset just when you think it's going to appreciate. Yep. It's going to go the other way. And we saw a classic case of that. If you look through the GFC period, I think gold fell from $1,000 plus to about six fifty mm. during the GFC and everyone was shaking their heads. Yep. And what the hell? And it was because the US dollar was repatriating like mad and going up like topsy. Mm. Uh, uh, and that happens just about every crisis. If you look on the chart, it ha- it's happened through, uh, you know, the last three end-of-cycle shocks. So it's pretty reliable. Um, you know, there are, really aren't many end-of-cycle shocks. Well, I haven't seen one in my lifetime where the US dollar doesn't get a bid. Mm. And so gold is actually quite problematic when you get into cyclical accidents. Yep. Um, so- and so it's useful to think of gold as partly a commodity. Uh, sorry, it's partly a, a currency. Yes. Yeah. Quite right. Yep. Um, so, you know, the, the odd part about this is that the time to buy gold, therefore, is actually during the crisis. Yep. Not buying it before as a safe haven, but picking it up uh, during the crisis itself. Because what tra- what transpires during and after a crisis, of course, is, is the cutting of interest rates in, in, by the Federal Reserve. Yep. Which, as soon as things stabilise, trashes the US dollar, mm-hmm. and suddenly gold is in, in very high demand. Sure. Of course, that that would and, that would mitigate you or predicate you actually holding uh, large enough reserves to buy the gold during a crisis, which um, is normally yes. when everyone's reaching and, for capital rather than look, sitting on it. That's right, <laughs> and 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 if even if you're planning on trading gold in that way, you're not using it as a safe haven. I mean, you are just simply tra- trading a commodity it's asset. An asset, asset class. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's one other point I guess I would make about that chart: the, the huge run-up that we've seen. You can see is has been much larger than the fall in the US dollar. And so I just make the point that, you know, some would say that that sort of goes against my argument, but it's it doesn't. Um, they're not proportional one-to-one. Mm. Basically, it's, it's about the underpinning stability of the US dollar and, uh, and as the reserve currency. And when those underpinnings are shaky, then gold will go up. And so it's about the trend. As long mm. as that shakiness is there, then the alternative, the un-dollar, the alternative 
US dollar, yep. gold, gold will yep. rise. And so there is an, an equivalence in the value change, but it's um, in a trend term, it's very, very closely correlated. Um, so, for instance, that big run-up, you know, was to, was through a period where um, the Federal Reserve, you know, is fighting deflation for many years, uh, you know, had twin deficits in the US. There's a lot of uncertainty with new, uh, you know, money printing and new monetary tools, um, a US, you know, housing crisis, of course, and all of those things that... Um, were and then geopolitical questions about the rise of China, all sorts of stuff, which really challenged the foundations of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, mm-hmm. and gold just loved that. Mm. Right, but but as the U.S. has kind of turned around, it's been through its structural adjustment. You know, it it did a lot of deleveraging for households, and you know, obviously had its gas and oil boom, and has has simply come, you know, come out of the the uh, quagmire better than others, then gold's really been struggling ever since because the stability has returned to the US dollar. Mm, okay. Yeah, fair point. Uh, Damien, just a quick one. Um, obviously, no gold in the portfolio at the moment. Um, thoughts on it going forward? Is there, are we ever going to see gold in a, uh, in look, a, in we, a MB fund? or No. Look, we, uh, the whole idea of the nucleus fund is, is, is that we're... Um, we're We've got core assets within this fund, and and so we're, we've got large cap uh, Aussie equities. We've got uh, government bonds, not corporate bonds. We've got uh, large cap shares and um, and cash, and so the idea is that we're we're sort of trying to hold the assets to the sort of sit within the central part of somebody's uh, portfolio that you pretty much want to own all the time, and you want to use that to get your diversification and 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 control your control the risk in your portfolio. The nucleus, the nucleus of your portfolio, <laughs> exactly the core nucleus, and so and then the idea is then around that. You can then, um, if you, you know, there's times to buy gold, there's times to buy private equity or, or emerging markets or, or small cap equities. Um, you know, there's the right times to buy those ones, but, um, we're, we're trying to do that central part and let people sort of drift in and out of those other assets as they see fit. And for many people, they never bother and they're just happy to keep that central, yep. you know, that central return and that, that, you know. You can sleep at night and yep. and um, yeah, you don't have to worry about you know will gold double or triple or or half or, or quarter type thing over a time period or okay yeah look fair so enough okay. I'm just just finally on on gold and the question of this time it's different just just a couple of scenarios where uh, you know we, we think through whether gold could go up at the end of this cycle given the array of risks that we face is there anything there that could trigger a gold rally. Mm-hmm. Um, if we get the the normal run of the mill meltdown coming out of Federal Reserve tightening, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. You know that that would be US dollar bullish. Yep, you'd see a classic stock market shakeout, and you would expect gold to to uh, take a, a thumping. Okay. during that crisis, uh, as as you know, money repatriates into the US dollar. Uh, trade wars. Uh, there's nothing really there. Either, I mean, some are arguing that this is going to accelerate the decline of the US dollar and the rise of the yuan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't buy that at all. I think that's largely rhetorical. I, I can't see uh, how the yuan can really threaten the US dollar even long term. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just an opaque market, yeah, incredibly opaque market. Markets in China, um, capital you know, runs, controls, capital controls runs big trade surpluses mm-hmm. um, so there's no debt to buy mm-hmm. um, very difficult to see how the yuan can rise it can certainly sort of populate a few alliances trade alliances and stuff but that's really marginal mm-hmm. um, and and to, to sort of make the point when you look at the IMF of reserve currency holdings for sovereigns um, the, the yuan is considerably smaller than the Australian dollar mm. you know let alone the US it's like two percent or something of us dollar holdings worldwide yeah it's rising but low base well it's extraordinarily low base and i I just think you know china has set up a sort of alternative set of uh financial market um, excuse me structures like the imf and world bank that that are more suited to itself in the yuan but again they don't have the alliance network for that to to populate Mm mm-hmm 
very widely. Uh, so, so that scenario doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. We don't really see that, that playing out. The only one that I can see where gold might benefit, and I, I suspect it would be in a race with the US dollar anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I think they would both go up, uh, is, is one in which Italy was to really threaten the euro. Oh, right. So if, if we, either either that being a trigger for a shock or during a shock that was to add to it or you know the the adjustment was politically chaotic enough that it forced you know more change into italy um then if the if the existence of the euro were threatened i think that's a sufficiently uh severe blow to large-scale feed currency in general Mm. for gold to benefit yep okay but that said, I think the US dollar would go to the moon in that scenario. So it doesn't seem to be a lot of point to hold gold anyway if you can, if you, can you know, um, use the US dollar as a hedge. Sure. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a good point. All right, we better press on. Um, so we'll roll just quickly through some alternative assets. Um, we've got a couple of commodities, real estate, uh, private equity. You sort of touched on these before as um, potentially external holdings to what we do at Nucleus Wealth, but they bear mm. a quick... Uh, yeah, so a few quick thoughts. Com- commodities generally, um, when when growth is world growth is high, commodities go up. When world growth is low, they generally go down. Now, it's not true across every commodity and, and not true across every cycle, but but in in general terms, um, good demand commodities go up, and so you usually see uh, commodities fall quite quite precipitously um, in these events. Uh, real estate. Very much depends upon that. Real estate is an interesting asset um, in that uh, if the crisis is centered around real estate, <laughs> then um, you know that's they're it's obviously in. <laughs> they're obviously going down. Yep. But um, it does have safe. It is a bit of a safe haven, and so um, if it's not centered around real estate, then you can get you can see some some benefits in it. Yep. L- lower interest rates, obviously, in, yeah. in any crisis, is obviously it makes makes it a potential safe haven. That's right. Yeah. The, the thing to note, though, as well, and, and if it's that, not massively overinflated already, yes, mm, exactly. Mm. Which for Australia, we're we're on the path of saying, well, Australian real estate, where we've got our concerns that you know a crisis could well be centred on Australian real estate. Um, so you know, a holding of real estate, you know, it probably isn't going to be that useful. The other thing to note with with all these asset, all these alternative asset classes, quite often um, during crises, you see um, sort of. Things about how well some of these assets have, have held up relative to equities. Um, that isn't always the case, um, even though they look like they might have. A lot of these have rules about how often they need to be revalued, mm. and so what it quite often it may well be that stocks are revalued every day. Um, is that you know the, the assets been revalued? Last year at, 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 at cyclical high, it needs to be valued once every three years, at least once every three years. And the asset manager is going, just going, well, if I don't revalue that asset for, for another two years, that gives me a chance to, to jump over the, the chasm that's opened up. And hopefully, you know, in two years time, the, the price, you know, the real price has fallen 30%, but we'll have recovered 20 of that. And so I'll just be able to say, well, over, over three years, I lost you know, 10% and yep. look how stable my asset was, mm. which is not the truth of what's happened below that. So, sure. so I guess for all these, it's, it's more for me about saying, well, what, what asset are you actually buying? And, um, you know, something, let's say a private equity, you've got equity in an, an unheld firm. Generally speaking, um, those, uh, the value of those firms is very, very correlated to the stock market. Mm-hmm. It's just not listed every day. Mm. Um, and so it's the same thing. You know, some of these guys will only revalue when they do a capital raising. Yep. And if they've done their last capital raising, they'll tell you about how, look how well my, you know, look what great correlations, you know, negative correlation to the stock market and all that. Well, the only reason why that happened was because you didn't revalue any of your assets for, for a year. Yeah, sure. Um, during the, during the crisis. So, um, some of them are, are interesting. Um, it's, t- we haven't got enough time to go into, to which ones are and which ones aren't. There, there are certainly some, some alternative assets that can provide diversification, but there is plenty of them that either, um, provide worse or, um, are, are very correlated. Yeah, very correlated, but they just don't mark to market. So uh, they look like they're they're way better than they really are. Coming, and I guess that you've got liquidity issues there with a lot oh, of those. Yeah, well. absolutely. Yeah. Liquidity is <laughs> liquidity is a key one. Is that? Um, and actually, I'll move. That's probably a good good um, you know into the stock selection because because one of the, one of the interesting things on the stock selection side is um, there are a lot. Uh, you, 
usually what you find is the the best stocks out there and the, the highest quality stocks are often the most liquid as well. Yep. And in the early stages of the crisis, um, there's hedge funds and, and traders who are just basically, I need to get out of stocks. I'm already in liquid stocks. I just need to dump whatever I've got. Mm-hmm. And and even people you know who are sitting at looking at going, well, I'd like to. I've got two stocks to sell. One really high quality, one that's traded heaps, and one really low quality where there's this massive bid ask spread, or maybe there's no bid at all on on this you know low quality one, right? I'd like to keep the high quality one, but I have to sell for debt reasons or for whatever it is to bring down my thing. So I'm selling the most liquid asset. Sure. So quite often you see some some of the good quality stuff get hit a little bit harder at the start, mm. which is often a great opportunity for for um, you know for equity managers to go right. I'm you know now's the time to pick up the stocks I've always wanted to buy but never could. Yeah. And, and then the the next phase of the crisis is as all the uh, all the low quality stuff and the, and the illiquid stuff gradually gets sold from people's portfolios and you get that rebalance. And you get that and there's so, obviously potentially bigger hits on those portfolios as well because they're just going to have to take any price. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and and at that stage, you know, that people go from risk on to risk off and it's uh, the part about um, hey, look, this company doesn't make any money, but it's going to look. Think about how much money it's going to make in three years' time. To just a minute, this company doesn't make any money, um, and you know, it might not be here in three years' time. So <laughs> why would I want to own it at all? And so you know, it's just that the, the thought process that people go through, um, you know, from positive to negative, and and so yeah. So you want you want the the good value and the and the and cheaper ones, but all there's basically three types of. Um, uh, so yeah, let's jump to the the types of stocks that we look at. There's, there's a few different few different classifications sort of we go through. One by economic type. So so generally, I like to look at it as um, there's this there's this class of stocks that uh, are interest rate sensitive or bond proxies, um, and that that includes real estates, uh, real estate utilities, um, uh, telcos to a certain extent, um, a lot of infrastructure stocks. So mm-hmm. the, so the idea is these ones have got very very stable cash flows. Um, and they're almost like a bond in terms of like a corporate bond in terms of the way they're going to the trade. Yes, you might see some some downside, but nothing like the downside you'll see in in other stocks. So when when the proverbial hits the fan, these are the stocks that are going to hold up. Yep. Um, as long again with a with the uh, that proviso that as long as the the crisis isn't actually centered on 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 them. Yep. Um, then you get the the sort of the next step up. You get the defensive stocks, and these are the ones which are the um, uh, more like your consumer staples, so yep. the stuff you buy every day. It's your food, it's your toothpaste, it's your shampoo. It's it's these uh, stocks that, you know, regardless of whether there's a financial crisis on or not, um, you've got to clean your teeth. You've got to clean your teeth, and yeah, that's right. <laughs> keep and keep going through. So there's so there's those ones. Um, the uh, then you get to the the cycl- what we call the cyclical stocks, and they're the ones that that are more re- related to to growth in the economy. Um, so resources sort of sit in this category. You also th- see things like uh, consumer discretionary. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, if you want to buy a Louis Vuitton handbag, it's much easier when economies are booming and and all that type of stuff. There's lots of people out there with lots of money to to buy these handbags. When uh, everything hits the fan, all of a sudden there's a lot fewer people that decide that yes, I'd like to spend a couple of grand on 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 a new handbag. Sure. Um, uh, so so generally speaking, they're the ones that get hit the most. So you sort of go the the interest rate sensitive ones are are, are pretty good. Uh, the defensive ones, um, you often hold up pretty well as also. Uh, the cyclicals are the ones where you really get hit. Uh, and then financials, again, is a little bit of that depends upon, they've got elements of a few, a few of these and it depends on where it's, uh, where it's centered. But they're more often than not, financials are, will get hit, uh, in the, um, when, when the crisis happens. Okay. So that's one way to look at it. Um, the next way is sort of by the, by this quant factor, I call it. And so this is the part that comes back to we've we've done a few different um, podcasts on these, but it's the idea is: Are you a quality stock? So um, are you better than most of your competitors? Earn higher margins? Um, uh, are you the one in the industry that uh, when you know the people turn to for um, for safety, or, or are you a very low margin player who's just sort of just surviving on the edge? Mm-hmm. So so that sort of and and as you'd expect, quality stocks tend to to outperform when when crises happen. Sure. Um, value stocks. So what we mean by value is, is things that are cheap versus things that are expensive. And again, the the, cheap, the cheaper stocks are the ones that tend to perform better. Mm-hmm. So uh, and, and and in a way, value a value strategy is basically I buy cheap stocks all the time, and you generally lose, you generally underperform the market by by a little bit, mm-hmm. and then a crisis happens and, and you outperform massively. And so. Um, so it doesn't happen every time, and 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 part, we spoke a lot of that was about the definition of value, but but largely that's your your take on a on a 
you want to be buying high quality stocks that are that are that are cheap. That are cheap. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Um, growth stocks are sort of your other quant factor. They're the ones you don't want to be holding. So the stocks that are that are priced for what they're going to do next year and the year after and, and, and all that type of stuff with no no look at what's currently happening. And they're the stocks when the economy grows five percent, they're gonna be growing ten percent. But when the economy shrinks by five, they're they're shrinking by minus ten or minus fifteen. And sure. so they're the ones to to avoid in these situations. Uh, there's some other factors, sort of momentum, which is another pretty pretty similar to growth. You know, what goes up the most generally is, is what falls the most. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so you, can, so you can look at those, um, and that's you know that's another factor we, we tend to look at in terms of how we're positioning our portfolio. So uh, on the first set, we're, we've we haven't actually got that many interest rate sensitive, just because interest rate sensitive is very very expensive at the moment. Sure. So so we're piled into the defensive. <laughs> okay. Um, and then we've got a few at the other end. We've sort of got a bit of a barbell in our portfolio. We've got a, a bunch of defensive stocks, and then a few on the cyclical side to to take advantage of the you know the, this last phase of the U.S. growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but keeping that sort of that that base of stocks there that that you know if things happen there that um. You'll then sell those stocks at, at higher prices and, and go and look and try to see where you can buy in some of the growth stocks. And I guess this strategy is, you know, obviously, as an active manager with the portfolios reviewed daily, this is, you know, it, it's imperative that you, you know, it needs to be happening that way if you're going to play in that space. That's right. Yeah. It's, your sort of bread and butter is just trawling through and which stocks are up and down and, and where they sit on, on, on various quality metrics and, and value metrics. Sure. Um, Small caps, large caps. Yeah, you usually see um, when when things go well. Um, well, sorry, when times in times of trouble, uh, large caps generally hold up better than small mm-hmm. uh, capitalization stocks. Um, and if you're talking about micro capitalization, like when I say small capitalization, I guess I think of large capitalization as sort of equivalent to the the ASX 50, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, small cap sort of sits somewhere between that and and the ASX 300. So still talking hundred million dollar. Plus stocks. Yep. When you talk micro cap stocks, which are the really small ones, they're the ones that can really get smashed mm. just because there's just no buyers for your for your stock, and so yeah, often you just got to wait it out or, or yep. whatever it is, just because there's not a you don't you know you're missing a bit at, the, at that point in time. Sure. Um, geographically, you can play around with a little bit of this as well. Again, that comes back to where where is the crisis affects most of the ge- geographies, but. Um, you do find U.S., uh, Japan again will, will hold up a little bit better. Mm. Um, well, and, and Japan sort of depends upon what you've got, whether you've got exporters or not. But but yeah, uh, geographically you can see you'll see differences. And then by business type, what I mean by that is whether you're um, a manufacturer versus a service company versus um, uh, you know, and and how long your cycle is. So. What we spend a bit of time, you know, is, is looking and making sure. Well, if you're if you're a business that's invested a lot of capital up front, mm-hmm. and a crisis hits, it's bad luck. You, you're going to sit there and lose money for a few years, you know, hoping everything turns around. Yep. Whereas if you're quite an asset light business, well, you might be able to cut your costs quite quickly and and get back to the you know, get back to to cash flow positive a lot faster than than somebody else who who can't. So gotcha. yeah, the type of business you've got matters as well in yep. terms, of, in terms well, of that. No, that makes sense. Okay, sure thing. Plenty, plenty to think about there. Yeah. Okay. Quick, um, quick chart on correlations. Yeah. This is just a long-term one, just sort of showing that um, between countries, uh, there used to be quite low correlation between um, countries, but uh, globally, and this is over sort of 100 years or so, um, but that's changed. Like now the correlation is pretty high, and especially in large caps because these companies are seen in so many different countries already. Um, the, the correlation can be very high, and it's, it's more about knowing, uh, okay, what stocks do I own in my portfolio, and then which countries are those stocks in because versus um, knowing that, yes, I own a McDonald's or a, or a Starbucks that's actually in a whole bunch of different countries. Yeah, it might be more focused on the US, but it does actually have a pretty global reach and is there um i guess is it the overall just increase in the ability for capital to move around the world helping that correlation as well yeah absolutely it's much it's obviously much easier now to buy a stock in in the u.s than what it was 20 years ago and and certainly vastly different to what it was 50 years ago sure okay all right very good um and still on the on the topic of correlations Correlations, yeah so i've got a correlation matrix up there which i'll let people look through um you know, in their own time, but I guess the the point of this was just to to highlight that that some assets are, are very correlated to each other traditionally. Now, this uh, the other thing is correlations change, and, and they're not always the same. And every single time, it needs to be what is this crisis, and will the cor- will the general correlations hold? Sure. But um, you can see the the green on this chart shows you which assets aren't very correlated with each other, and the red shows which which assets are very correlated. With the idea that well, if you've bought 
um, some US large caps and you've bought some US small caps, well, you haven't got much diversification. Mm. Uh, whereas if you've bought one and you've bought some bonds on the other side or you're, you're, stre- you're stretching into emerging markets or whatever it is, you can get some, some pretty different correlations with them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the correlations are, you know, can, can be good or can be bad with that. Yeah. And that, so that's, and then by, so that was, there's one, there's some stuff in there by sector. I've got another one, which is sort of, uh, another correlation chart, which is, um, which sort of shows very similar types of things, but for, um, across some of the more major asset classes rather than the, the individual sectors. Um, and so, so I'll probably leave that at, yeah. Yep. Okay. No, sure. Um, well, uh, if anybody would like um, copies of these, just uh, let us know at webinar at nucleuswealth.com and we can uh, send you through the slide pack as well. So uh, just wrapping up now, well, I guess uh, obviously implications for investment. We've uh, we've gone fairly broad and then quite detailed in a number of, uh, of the areas that we look at. It's been fantastic. Um, the I guess just broadly speaking, though, um, looking forward, I guess, as, as well, more than anything, um, and the way that we're positioning our portfolios, given given the assets that we're the asset allocation we've looked at today, yeah. So, so what our, our take is that we're in the final stages of this whole um, growth boom, uh, US centric sort of growth boom, and and um, that that'll you know absent uh, some sort of crisis in the meantime, that'll keep filtering out to other countries and, mm-hmm. and keep keep demand in some of these other countries ticking along. Uh, we've got some issues in terms of China and how fast China slows, but but generally speaking, it's about saying, well, how can we how can we make sure we're, we're not um, we're not sitting out this final stage because it could be a drawn out. Um, we could could last a year, two years, three years. It could be a long drawn out process of topping, uh, and and making sure that you've got some exposure to that. But on the flip side, is making sure you've got um, downside protection. So if, if everything unravels quickly because of um, you know something Trump does or something happens in economies or, or China, um, you know miscalculating its its fine job of of slowing the economy um, without without crashing it. Um, that you've got protection within your portfolio, so so that's sort of where we're sitting at the moment. Um, we don't think it's it's time to be you know really really conservative, but but sure. we are quite conservative at the moment. And and that was that whole thing with the, what I call the barbell risk in stock selection is yeah a bunch of quite safe stocks. Having said that, we've we've, we've we're steering away from the real interest rate sensitive just because we can't find stocks we think are cheap enough, mm-hmm. and we've sort of got gone a whole mix of the stocks, whether it be. Kellogg's and Kimberly Clark's and and Unilever's and these sort of stocks that provide quite safe, well, sorry, quite quite high quality and steady earnings. We've sort of gone for a whole basket of those to, to give us sort of that diversification. Okay. And at the other end, um, you know, still trying to hang on to some of the growth through whether it be recruiters or, or things like that in the US that are, that are benefiting from the the employment boom there. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Um, we, we've got a bias towards US growth, but we're pretty wary of overpaying. And what, so what that means is we're quite often picking up stocks that are a lot cheaper sitting in some of the peripheral markets that actually do have big exposures to the US. So whether it be um, Norway, Denmark, you know, UK even, where we can find some stocks that are listed in other countries but actually have pretty decent exposure to the US and so we can buy it at a much cheaper multiple than, than if you actually bought this, a similar stock on the on the US stock market. Yep. Um, and, and just just quickly as well, obviously, um, there's a bit of turmoil in, in Europe. So um, what, are you doing anything there? We're, we're, we're looking, is it is, is that the, is it building a, a shopping list as it were? Yeah, absolutely. So we're, so we're underweight to, the, to, to things within the Eurozone itself. Sure. Um, but we've got a bit of a shopping list there, particularly Europe, uh, Italy. You know, we've been going through Italy. We don't, don't own any um, major holdings there any direct holdings but we've got a bit of a shopping list if, if something does happen there um, we've sort of got our list of these are the stocks we'd like to buy and if they fall to you know these prices then then we're in okay and so they generally tend to be exporters or, or, or things like that but um, yeah there's certainly you know I think it's it's important to to be looking forward to these things and knowing what you want <coughs> first and and at what price you're happy to, to to jump into these rather than waiting for the crisis to happen and then turning around something going oh just a minute we've got to do all this research and work out you know do we like these or don't like these yep you know most of the time it's it's the boy scout you know be prepared and, and <laughs> where are you expecting things to go wrong and okay if things do go wrong at what stage am I saying well this is low enough because um yeah, otherwise you can sort of be stuck, you know, frozen and deer in the headlights type thing. Yep. Crisis is happening. What do I do? Let me just do nothing and hope, hopefully it'll all avert. But if you've got the plans sort of set up beforehand, um, generally tends to, to work out better for you. Okay, sure thing. Uh, any notes there, David? Uh, I, I guess I'd just add that there is something idiosyncratic about chasing the US at the moment uh, if you're Australian because, um, you know, the particular macro setup where you have a booming US and a slowing China and emerging markets 
potentially gives you um, the combination of rising US equities and a falling Australian dollar, mm-hmm. uh, which you know obviously sets up potentially very good returns. Mm. Uh, and as Damo says, that's why we're like we're definitely late cycle, and you never know how late you are, and so we're quite conservatively conservatively positioned. But that that um, setup and and opportunity is what keeps us in the market at the same time. Sure. Okay, very good. And we just had, um, and I noticed there, uh, there's our final point for, for Trump risks there. We've had a, obviously we're shooting this live. The, um, uh, we've got a, a question there on a, the world trade, wor- world trade war is on. Uh, what comes next? Uh, history shows that a real war might follow. Is there any thoughts on that one? Just, just to, to finish off in terms of perhaps, um, Macroeconomically, but also perhaps from the from the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'll just just okay. let me first. I'll say that if the trade war remains warm without going super hot, mm-hmm. then it, it plays into what we've just been talking about. Sure, like it lifts U.S. Um, inflation, mm-hmm. probably lifts U.S. growth short term, uh, and lifts the U.S. dollar, and it does damage to China and emerging markets. So it actually we're positioned for that. Sure. Um, if if it were to really intensify, um, and uh, I mean it's a big leap, even if it intensifies to get to war. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of variables at play here, but I mean at the moment you can see, uh, despite Trump, you know, really attacking everybody, including his allies, mm. on a number of different fronts. He's given the Germans a spray this morning. Yes, he has, <laughs> and I think people are kind of adapting to it now. Mm. They realise that they're in for a spray, you know, and so they don't overreact, even if it's very much outside of protocol. Mm. Um, but underneath that, you've seen some really interesting shifts uh, around the world towards Chinese trade. Um, Europe, you know, uh, China effectively invited Europe to join it in resisting uh, US tariffs. Okay. And it, and, and it rebuffed yeah, right. China mm-hmm. because... Germany obviously is based on IP. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a high tech economy, uh, and you know the Chinese um, uh, technology transfer structures just don't work for for Germany. <laughs> they don't work for Japan. They don't work for the US. Sure, um, you know they're not fair. Mm. Uh, uh, then at the same time, you've got China, um, you know, building this uh, belt, one belt one road extravaganza which mm. is an enormous infrastructure undertaking uh, but there are half a dozen examples now of those projects being canned cancelled um, embroiled in controversy delayed yep. pushed back upon largely because of corruption mm-hmm. uh, and so you, you know there is a bit of building momentum um, against China uh, which is going to give the US you know greater uh, momentum in taking on uh, China. Um, so how far do they push it? Well, we're not sure, quite sure. Um, we think China should do a deal. We don't quite understand why why it doesn't do the sort of deal where it could just buy, buy a whole lot of US oil and gas, um, take the heat off. You know, it helps Trump for six months or a year, but mm-hmm. for China it helps it for 10. Sure. Uh, and, and we think that that would be the sensible path for China to take. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps it's been delaying on that while it, it sort of t- it 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 takes the temperature of global reaction to Trump. Yep. And maybe they you know they were looking to see if they could rally the world against the US mm-hmm. and do its alliance network a lot of harm. That hasn't hasn't worked. Doesn't seem to be working. Uh, so um, at this point, the US has kind of got China uh, where it wants it, mm-hmm. um, and. I guess if you boil all that down, I'd be surprised if this does not end in some form of backroom China capitulation. Yeah, right. Okay. Once enough pain has sort of transpired. Yep. Um, I guess the other component to it is domestic U.S. politics. China might calculate that it can can pressure Trump, you know, via targeted tariffs, counter tariffs, various other mechanisms. That will lose him votes, and then you've got the midterms mm-hmm. in the U.S. If the Republicans took a caning on that front, they'd get very nervous right. uh, about trade, and maybe they can they can gamble that 
they can use domestic politics against Trump and 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 see him off mm-hmm. in that way. Uh, but it still actually makes more sense in terms of China's national interest, which should be the driver mm. for them to do some kind of deal uh, before this gets too out of hand. The problem for them is if they really push this, the Chinese push back. Uh, Trump's in a position, and the US is in the position, to do them a lot of harm. Mm. Um, very big tariffs, the Fed's hiking. You can get into a cycle of US inflation, capital outflow across emerging markets and China, mm-hmm. uh, and a potential financial crisis, even, mm. for China. Mm. Like, if the yuan really starts to crash, um, they run out of forex reserves trying to support it. Um, it would be a really big gambit for them to take the US on in a geopolitical sense. Yep. Uh, a foolish one, in my view. Um, uh, and it's possible if they provide that opportunity to Washington, it will take it. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't think they should push that that hard either. Um, to me, it's very clear that the national interest of China is to do a deal. Mm. Uh, and interests usually determine the, the outcomes. But, but when you know, he's in the lap of the gods. Okay. And just as a, it was a bit of a follow, follow on question, but I guess, um, I think it probably runs on the same line, um, where the, uh, it says here, looking at the islands built by China and the tension between the surrounding countries, uh, is it possible to use war to get out of, in case of a downfall in the economy? So essentially, is coming stim- stimulate through destruction essentially. Well, you certainly can, and, and and if you're struggling economically, then then finding an external enemy is is, is sort of is di- dictator one hundred and one. Yeah. Um, but I mean, China has a lot of other tools. Uh, you know, like China would have to be in a pretty extreme circumstance to be thinking like that. Sure. Uh, hey, and you probably see some a few proxy wars before you see a, you a would. real war. Yeah, so we haven't I mean, the, that stage yet. Yeah, and the other the, the thing is, there's there's no military equivalence between China and the US. Mm. You know, we're talking one broken aircraft carrier versus twenty two, or twenty three. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, there there are many different variables in this. China has an army of subs, and you know, uh, there's a whole lot of other factors. Mm. Uh, but just in raw military power, they can't compete. So I'm not sure they would would want to try. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know the other the other sort of um, strategic component of this is North Korea. Uh, you know, like the, the Chinese, it's very much in the Chinese national interest to get the Marines out of South Korea. Mm-hmm. The Trump, the deal that Trump's offered them is a terrific one for China. Sure. Uh, you know, through Kim Jong Un, Kim Jong Il Jong or Jong Il, yeah, him, and. Um, so you know, like he, he can, um, China China can can uh, well well Trump can dangle that deal as mm-hmm. well, and China can risk that deal, like if it pushes this too far. So I mean, there are a lot of different chess pieces on the board mm-hmm. uh, from which China could benefit by dealing with the US, uh, and not that many by resisting it, frankly. Yeah, yeah sure. But, but I guess as a as as an overarching theme is I guess what we're what we're saying is for a lukewarm. Trade war plus more tension. That's that's where we're positioned. Um, if it gets super hot, yeah, look, we'll be changing asset allocation at, at that point in time. Yeah, um, you know, it's a it's a pretty much given. And, and the other one to note is is the other big one is um, the oil price. And, and the other risk for from a, from a Trump perspective is just whether he does do something in in Iran that's that's much bigger than 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 a few more trade sanctions, or you know whether they you do end up in a war or a proxy war in, in Iran or whatever the case is. Um, so that that's obviously a big risk for um, for a number, across a number of ranges. So we probably um, look it's, it's one we need to look at the if, if that gets more serious, we'll need to look at some of our holdings for for that type of yep. event. Okay, well, good to know. All right, fantastic, Jensen. So um, if you'd like to know more information about how you can get the power of everything we've spoken about today in your portfolio, uh, here's some information about Nucleus Wealth. Nucleus Wealth and the Macro Business Fund was put together to help give you access to quality, well-researched stock analysis and superior macroeconomically-minded asset allocation. We use technology to help us provide a service typically only available to high net worth and sophisticated investors at a fee level that rivals the more basic solutions available to these everyday investors. We do this by using separately managed accounts, which allows clients to enjoy unparalleled transparency in what they own and why. 
It also means that each client effectively owns their own separate and discrete share portfolio, which is managed by us. We have partnered with Linear Asset Management, who are backed by the ANZ Bank for cash management, and JP Morgan, one of the biggest banks in the world, as custodian of your assets. We feel that this structure is the gold standard for your financial protection. In addition to this, we offer 19 separate and individual ethical screens that you can use to help tailor your investment. To ensure that your money is not being used to support companies that deal in areas and practices that you feel are important. By eliminating the areas that are only important to you, you keep the potential for higher returning areas that you might otherwise be ambivalent about. And these would typically be ruled out in broader ethical products currently available in the market. The name Nucleus comes from our ability to provide the core holdings of a client's portfolio, allowing them the time to explore areas that may be of interest or they may have experience in. We also offer a complete investment solution for those who don't have time to coordinate their own investments. Our investment team has decades of experience in world markets and we have access to a global team of stock analysts. By removing the layers of middlemen that typically sit between your money and the markets, we've been able to reduce fees and provide unparalleled transparency in the solution we provide. For more information on what we can do for you, please call 1300 623 863 or contact us through www.nucleuswealth.com.